Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Vandana Shiva. Vandana Shiva is a scholar, food sovereignty advocate and environmental activist. She is the author of Oneness Versus the 1%, Shattering Illusions and Seeding Freedom. For more information on Vandana's work and to take part in her online courses, go to navdanya.org. She's one of my favourite people to speak to in the world, maybe my favourite. Towards the end of the conversation, I said I wanted to get her to come over to England, and I'm going to do that. What do you think, Jen? Yeah, she seemed happy with the invitation. I think she'll come over I was, to... wasn't sure how she'd take it. I feel like she's someone who'd be like, no. I don't want to come <laughs> yeah. to England. I think she's going to come. Yeah, she will. And I think that will, what I feel like is that it's the person I would have least trouble standing silently next to while they spoke. That's good. In the world. Why don't you see, look at everyone like Vandana, just imagine her. Isn't that a good way to do things? Like religious people are like, everyone has Jesus in them. Oh, right. Okay. You see what I mean? <laughs> like you look really upset by that thought for a moment. Well, because they're not like that. But we That's are. what gets on my nerves Isn't about them. <laughs> <laughs> they're a pain in the You're ass. You're already getting annoyed that we're not all Vandana. Why is no one more like Vandana Shiva? <laughs> but also I think she has some, I think it's her particularity. I recognize the sublime and the divinity in everybody. And I see that as part of their particular, you know, like, I like that people are particular and specific and strange and unusual and basically broken. But in terms of some that's fulfilling a role in my own psychic life there's quite a lot of requirements as a matter of fact I mean probably for anyone's psychic life the, the people that we like I like as well gurus that are you like worshipping people not really but uh, I like but I like gurus like that are not like because I'm only perhaps saying a guru because of the way she dresses and where she's from but like I reckon like that I like that it's her gurudom is about stuff that's pretty boldly underwritten by she's educated isn't she she's clever yeah, she's really good like this when she delves into science or quantum physics it's like she can duck into so many pools man now time for comments here's some comments on sarah che's podcast yasmin said i'm definitely putting sarah's book on my christmas list such an interesting conversation. I need to learn more Christmas list. Do you have a Christmas list? Um, no, we don't really do presents. Even over in your family in Ireland? Oh, specifically. My sister said no presents this year, please. God. Because of the pressure and the stress. No presents? Is that the one that's... Isn't one of your... There's children, isn't there? Oh, yeah, except for the two-year-old. Two-year-old. Two is going to get rid of something. Yeah. <laughs> Michelle Labda, this was a great interview. I look forward to the new releases on Luminary each week. I've got to go back and re-listen to this one with so many insights. Yeah, she was really good, Sarah. I'd really like to speak to her again. I learned a lot from her as well. Another highly intelligent, compassionate person. Yeah, we're getting some good people on here. All right, listener shout-outs. Listener shout-outs. Melissa Gross. Hi, Russell Brand and Jenny May Finn. The friendship between you seems so effortless and genuine. Well, let me tell you, there's a lot of effort. Your voice is smooth like butter. Fill my ears and make... What, what are you still laughing about over there, Finn? Your voice is smooth like butter. This must be, must be my voice. And fills your ears. Fill yeah. my ears. Like, butter. Who wants ears full of butter? Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't like Especially it. Especially when That's it you. inevitably turns to cheese and mingles with earwax. 
Who wants that spread on toast? <laughs> earwaxy. Is there, there's probably some people who like eating earwax. Why is it the earwax coming out and the butter is not just staying in the ear? Because I feel like the butter over time is sort of solidifying in some way. And at some point you've got to pop that out of there. And it's going to bring with it a big plug of earwax, possibly sucking out the earwax that's in the ear canal. And it coming out like Wee Willy Winky's hat. Coming out like a slipper. <laughs> um, you make... And you make what would be a regular day of work informative and funny. Should you be listening to this at work, Michelle? What's going on there? What type of work are you doing, mate? Your ability to create a show that is a perfect mix of intelligent conversation, laughter and playful banter is beautiful. Well, I'll tell you now, there's no laughter or playful banter in this. It's just what? reverence. Oh, the actual podcast. Yeah, Yeah, the actual podcast. Yeah. No, there was a, a funny bit where you asked about her MacBook charger. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. She, yeah and then she even and used she that. She chuckled. To, she did a metaphor about God with that and all, I think power and self-generate i actually can listen to that back um the guests are relevant informative and important you make me want to be a better person god this is lovely who sent this better person and you have my support for life thank you thank you she says for giving me yet another thing to look forward to in this amazing life that's beautiful thanks melissa thank you so much you come and see a show melissa you're welcome to come to any show send us another email put um say like for angie for angie she might see it Say, put for Angie in the subject and say, Russell said I can come to a show. And I feel like you're in England, just based on the way you're talking. Do you think she's in England? Yeah, I get English Seems vibes. English. She wouldn't, if she was American, she wouldn't, in, she'd say, enjoy the banter bit so much. No offense yeah, to Americans. Yeah, you wouldn't say banter. Yeah, you'd be, and yeah. If you were from Australia, you wouldn't say, fill my ears with butter. <laughs> butter is a very English thing, isn't it? I think so. Butter. Have you got any butter? Yeah, but I say butter. Butter. You don't, but, do you? But, yeah, the butter. Irish. You say butter. I s- butter. <laughs> but. I spoke to an Irish man this morning. He had such a beautiful accent. I can't tell where he was like from. Mine? No, not. I said beautiful, Jen. And like it was. Uh, I think he was possibly from the <laughs> Galway. Maybe he did. Like he had some serious diphthongs going on. Some of the vowel sounds. There was about three or four different. Did he go shick like that? With his shhs. That would be Galway. Shick. Like when they instead of, instead of stick, they'd say shtick. Shtick. No, he didn't do that. Oh, okay. But there was some stuff going on I weren't familiar with. <laughs> I don't mean to see. I'm going to ask him. I'm going to find out who this guy is. He was pretty impressive. All right. Um, anyway, well, that's beautiful. Now, before we get into the uh, podcast with Vandana Shiva, the great, um, know this. I do a podcast whether you can meditate. You should be meditating by now every single day. There's no excuse for it. Meditate every day. Are you meditating every day, Jim? No. Did you meditate today? <coughs> no. Oh. When would I have meditated? I know, this morning. When you I was mostly waking up and then I did the bed and then I had to go. That was it? <laughs> and I'm on tour. So go to russellbrand.com if you're in England and go anywhere you want. You can see me. All right? Uh, and also, have you signed up to my mailing list? I'm guessing you have by now, but if you haven't, you really must because I sort of, um, well, I r- tell you what books I'm reading. It's making me have to read I've more I've been books. getting them in my inbox. Have you? Yeah, it's, it says it's from you and it's... And it's I'm confusing. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I do that when I'm on people's uh, <laughs> mailing lists that I also know. Yeah. It's confusing. And also look at the YouTube channels, both side and normal. But now let's enjoy Vandana Shiva. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. 
what's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told. Welcome to Russell Brand, Under the Skin. Thanks for joining us on Under the Skin, Vandana Shiva. Hello, Russell. Hello. What I learned from the last time you were on, many things that were particular and specific to the information that you conveyed, but that your voice is a very important one because of your credibility, because of the fact that you are a scholar, a teacher, an elder, an Indian woman, and that you are willing to speak openly about what seems to me to be globalist corruption and exploitation of ordinary people at a catastrophic level. These are kind of the kind of narratives that are often excluded from mainstream media, and yet you confidently speak about these ideas. What resistance have you faced? Is it something that you ever feel fearful of? And uh, how do you propose to continue? And what are your aims? That question could take you the whole podcast, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've faced enough resistance. Um, I remember when the Ministry of Environment asked me to do a study on mining, um, and this is 82, uh, and this became the first case in, I think not just India, but globally, uh, where uh, ecological issues became the ground for stopping commercial activity. The mining was destroying the water, it was the limestone aquifer. And uh, this, our study showed how uh, the destruction was actually much bigger as long as you counted it. And the economy of leaving the limestone in the mountain was a much bigger economy than the economy of extraction. Um, We did this study and I used to get threats from the miners. So you're leaving your eight month, I had a little baby, eight month baby and eight year old dad behind. And if you keep going to the mines, one day you'll return and not find them. And so I talked to my lovely dad and said, this is how they're calling and threatening me. And uh, he said, just follow your conscience. It's your strongest companion (laughs) to be fearless. And uh, that's what I've done all my life. My parents were that way. Um, And when, you know, when I took on Monsanto, Monsanto came into India totally illegally. We have laws in this country, unlike the Brexit, which is trying to dismantle what little biosafety there is with the new gene edited crops. They don't want any regulation. But when you modify an organism at the genetic level, it has impact on the organism. It has impact on those who eat that organism. It has impact on the rest of biodiversity and environment. That's why we created the International United Nations Framework for Biosafety. And I was appointed by the UN to be one of the experts. I was the only non-government person. Those days, and I'm talking way back in the early 90s, when people weren't addressing this question. And uh, so I, when Monsanto entered illegally, I took them to court. And then I got threats. I, I got all the threats in the world. And from that period of 98, 99, when I started the court case, to all these years of my research on GMOs, um, I've had plenty of threats. and. And actually, uh, a full, you know, they've deployed full-time people who are available to attack, you know, individuals, uh, deployed them full-time, and it it carries on. Um, But, you know, you take some people seriously and you don't take others seriously. I take you seriously, Russell. (laughs) 
Thank you very much. There will be no threats, merely admiration and a, a strong, strong requests, uh, petitions, petitions for education is all you will receive from me, Vandana Shiva. Um, what do you feel em emotionally, though, when you, it seems like it was a, a different point, obviously, in your life when the, the threats that related to the limestone mining issue and, and the later threats from Monsanto what is the uh, personal and emotional impact is it like do you feel fear in these in these instances um you have to cultivate fearlessness if you allow yourself to feel fear of course you will be afraid but if you work with your conscience and you recognize that every moment of your life isn't really in your hands in any case we don't know when we will go we don't know what will happen tomorrow, but you trust the larger forces. You work according to your conscience. And uh, every day your fearlessness has to be cultivated, like hope has to be cultivated, like compassion has to be cultivated. None of these are given qualities, you know. They're not Cartesian qualities that they're in you, you know, or they're not in you. It's all a potential and all potential gets cultivated with care, with attention, with love, including love for the qualities, you know? You have to make your choices about what kind of person you want to be. A person who's afraid of pathetic, greedy people, yeah, gluttons, or a person who can stand in front of them and speak the truth because they are causing too much harm to too much beauty on this planet, too much life on this planet, too many innocent people. I mean, just look at the number of people being killed by the fossil fuel mafia and with them the poison cartel, which are all derived from fossil fuels. And it's interesting, I, I don't know how much you follow this cop, but you know, one of the biggest toxics on the planet are synthetic chemical fertilizers derived from fossil fuels. And one of the biggest gases that's a greenhouse gas is nitrous oxide, which comes from fertilizers, and it is 300 times more damaging than carbon dioxide. And not a word on nitrous oxide, not one word. It's like a disappearance, you know, it's like an erasure. And to me, the extinction of species that's happening today, 200 species disappearing every day, the potential extinction of our species if we don't change track, but the eclipse and extinction of so much knowledge, of so much human quality in the world, that too is an extinction crisis. When you say that you <clears throat> were appointed by the UN in an advisory capacity to help create regulation, and then when you talk about COP26 and how absent from the agenda is specifically conversation around nitrous oxide in spite of its evident toxicity, what does this suggest about global bodies of this nature, their efficacy and even their intent? I think both national governments and global bodies have undergone massive change um, during these three decades. 92 was the year when, because of the pressure of movements, 
the governments were forced to act and uh, the UN Earth Summit was organized at Rio. It's really movement pressure and indigenous people's pressure, exactly the kind of pressure you saw on the streets of Copenhagen, but a much more coherent pressure. And they were forced to organize the Earth Summit and the two legally binding treaties that came out of that were the Biodiversity Convention and the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and two very important legal principles that have been used all over the world. The precautionary principle, which is the basis for no, saying you don't really know the impact of GMOs, so you have to act with caution. You don't know the impact of geoengineering, so don't experiment with the whole planet's climate system, which is what Mr. Bill Gates is doing. Um, at that point, and I, I was very active in, in the framing of these laws with my government. Uh, and that's where, because I, I think I was a, a, probably the only one at Rio talking about GMOs and biotechnology because the 87 meeting where I'd been invited by the UN and uh, other agencies, the Dagamajul Jewel Foundation, uh, they laid out and said, now we will own the seed, we will patent the seed. And that's why I started seed saving from 87 onwards. But I also started to follow GMOs. I started to follow international organizations, the GATT, the, which became the WTO. And I worked with my government and my government was a sovereign government because we didn't have globalization then. You know, We didn't have the global corporations inside our country. We didn't have the Monsantos here with their lobbyists. We didn't have the global fossil fuel industry we were sovereign. We had fought for independence and became independent, but that was the history of most of the world. What was globalization? Globalization was basically deregulating, destroying sovereignty, creating the rule of corporations. And that's the reason many of us who were looking at the GATT, I was looking at from, from the point of view of patents, intellectual property rights, agriculture, Others were looking at it from the perspective of privatization of water. And we got together and created an amazing organization that I think had a very important historic impact, the International Forum on Globalization. And we said, if we do not get together to tell the story of globalization, then they will, they will fib and say, oh, India became rich, you know, just because a few software engineers were taken to Silicon Valley. Um, and the real story won't be told. We got together and we stopped the World Trade Organization in Seattle. People and governments acting together. We said, this is really a commodification of the world. We said, this, our world is not for sale. And we stopped WTO. And it was interesting. Immediately, the Commerce Secretary of US wrote an article in the Herald Tribune, anti-globalization activists are terrorists. And from that time onwards, new attacks started on democracy. A young man was killed in Genova. And these are histories that we need to remember that there has been a shift in the role of governments, which were of the people, by the people, for the people with their corruption. I'm not saying they were pure, corrupt, but the corruption was limited because the power of money was limited. The mining money was very little compared to the money of the Monsantos. 
now you have governments that are of the corporations, by the corporations, and for the corporations. And because the corporations themselves are owned by the billionaire money and the Black Rocks and the vanguards, this is what you know I figured out when I wrote my book, Oneness Versus One Percent. Um, you really have billionaire and corporate rule right now. And that's the case for national governments, but it is also the case for the United Nations. In this short period, the UN Food Summit was hijacked by Mr. Gates. The Climate Summit has been hijacked by the billionaires who do two things. It's fascinating to watch because having been part of the process from the beginning, they erase a lot. Yeah. So for example, fossil fuels is coal and gas and oil, and all of them are causing harm. So they narrow it down to coal because gas and oil is in the rich countries. <laughs> and here now they can beat the poor countries, you know? And, uh, and from what I gather, actually on November the 10th, the US and China changed the phrasing and then told India, you say this. And now India is getting flogged for, for falling into the trap when everyone should have been saying, why aren't the other fossil fuels in there? Why aren't all the greenhouse gases in there? In, you know, the three big ones are carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, and methane. Methane has come out as the big one because uh, this is very interesting to me. You know, I've grown up with cows and our cows don't stink. You know, you, you can walk with shepherds in the Rajasthan desert or in the mountains and the goats and the sheep don't stink. You know? You, you can walk with reindeer in the forest and they don't stink. They're all ruminants, yeah? They all have four stomachs. Bill Gates laid out a thesis. The four stomachs of herbivores leads to methane. No, they have four stomachs so they can digest the roughage, the fiber. They then change this diet into beans and corn, which humans should be eating. You know, there's diversion of food to animal feed and treating the straw as waste product has then not just damaged agriculture, it has damaged animal health. And uh, when I read the literature, you know, just like our gut microbiome is being absolutely messed up with the toxic diet, is being absolutely messed up with the monoculture soybean diet, glyphosate in that diet. The animal gut is being messed up, not only because animals are supposed to be herbivores. That's why they call herbivores. Yeah? They like herbs. They don't like beans. <laughs> if you eat too much beans, you're going to fart. <laughs> you, you feed that day in and day out to the animals, of course they're going to emit methane. So now they've equated, not just equated, every cow, every sheep, every goat, every giraffe, <laughs> every camel, as part of this methane emitter. You know, they become all methane. Animals have become methane-emitting factories. But I love the studies, yeah? So they say, why are the free-range or traditional livestock with the pastoralists, the Maasai of Africa, why are they emitting more? Because they grow slowly, not, not with all the hormones and everything fed in the factory farms, because they grow slowly and and if you look at it at as the weight and and they 
they roam large areas. The, the prison for the animals is treated as efficient. Yeah, you put them in just a six foot cage. And so they're only using six foot space on this planet. No, they're using hundreds of acres in the Amazon forest, which is being destroyed. So that's called shadow acres. You know, these studies have been done, but they're not counted. But the best is this thing, you know, because uh, a native breed grows slowly, per unit meat in that, and not all breeds, I and mean, our cows are not meat, but they turn that into a unit meat and then say, therefore, they will be emitting more meat. All assumptions. And the lovely time, you know, we are living through this interesting time where they say big data is the new oil. And <clears throat> partly because I've studied science, you know, any program, any equation, you put in the inputs and that's what gets churned out. Algorithms put out what you feed into it. And uh, the computer programs are getting sophisticated, fancier and fancier and fancier. But the assumptions that are feeding into it are cruder and cruder and cruder and more out of context with reality. And one of the worst outcomes of the COP26 has been shifting the aim of human life on earth from being protecting the planet, protecting each other, and having a future which every species aims to do, to aiming for net zero. And net zero is we'll continue to pollute, but now we will work out massive algorithms in order to take control of your forests and your farms and, um, and work out a net zero by 2050. This is an amazing scientific fraud, accounting fraud on the world at a time where we should be thinking, what is the right way to live on this planet? What are the right actions that we must undertake? Net zero is continue the rubbish, <laughs> continue the pollution, continue the money making. And so what the question you asked, you know, I think we have come to a point where delegated democracy is not working. Direct democracy, participatory democracy is the only way we can bring change. Yes, Vandana. The evident misanthropy in the perspectives of many of the prominent voices we hear in these movements, notably and explicitly Bill Gates, even in the example you gave around the um, biological assessment of the digestive system of a cow, so it suggests a kind of cynicism and loathing for humankind and indeed for nature. That is this unspoken nexus of the ideology. Nature, whether human or animal or, uh, or, or um, botanical, is somehow wrong, inefficient, atavistic, must be left behind. Whereas these purportedly advanced systems are presented, as you explained, as neutral and objective when, in fact, they are managed and manipulated. Technocratic ideologies that mask their intentions as objectivity. I see this 
in lots of places that we're told this is the outcome that we have been led to by these new technologies and the technologies are presented as neutral but of course the technologies are merely utensils of the kinds of interests that have always existed in our previous conversation and it's something you do frequently you compared bill gates to the colonialists of yesteryear and the sort of many of the silicon valley and economic interests that operate within the global framework that you've just described as being comparable to the last wave of you know 19th or 18th century colonialists uh, who uh, wrought havoc upon your country. And I feel that without, as you say, direct democracy, without a fortified globalist response that acknowledges the importance of localism and the necessity for empowerment of local people and essentially if there are not national governments that are willing to represent the people instead of as you said for the corporations by the corporations unless there is that an ideological shift on that level i can see how protest of course non-violent will become an absolute an absolute necessity Vandana, I feel like there is so much, um, the way that there's, the way that in the, you know, I'm in a Western country, I'm English, you know, like the way that the cultural conversation is taking place now is so divisive, divisive, fragmented and fractured. These kind of issues, they sort of float above us. There are people like I do a YouTube channel, people are really aware of you know, Bill Gates, the impact of organizations such as the Bill and Hillary Clinton Foundation and the Bill and Melissa Gates Foundation. There's a sort of like somewhat nefarious implications of these neutral seeming or an even benevolent seeming funds. And how do we, do you feel, connect people to a, a deeper reality than the reality we're invited to participate in this ongoing fragmentation and conflict so that we can focus on the issues that are genuinely going to affect our futures. How do we mobilize people? How do we train people to see things differently? In the, particularly, I suppose, in the countries that I'm talking about, anglophonic countries, where people are so immersed in sort of cultural matters that I feel, is, whilst in some way significant, are ultimately distracting people from the interests of the powerful. Well, I... I think the powerful have always used divide and rule policies very consciously. They used it in, you know, the British used it in India and split my country and they created a Pakistan, you know, just drew a line, just, you know, one of the Britishers was just appointed to make a line and he ran away before the line was complete. <laughs> and, and therefore there's a Kashmir problem because the line didn't get drawn fully. Um, this art, artificial drawing of line in the sand, if you look at the Middle East, you know, the French and the British got together and just drew lines in the sand about how to, you know, divide up the oil and, uh, and the future control over the, uh, the oil era. Uh, but the divisions right now are divisions that literally are dissecting societies in every multiplicity of who we are, you know? We are religious beings, spiritual beings, we are unemployed or working, we are men and women and we are transgender. We are so many things. And they're taking each of these lines which were created 
For example, racism was very much part of slavery. Yeah, they were racist before, but we didn't have racism. Yeah, we've had religions before, but the the wars of religion were always economic wars. Yeah, they, they were really about controlling the spice trade and the silk trade, and uh, and and then you get all these religious conflicts. And you get a caricature of what a religion is. You get a caricature of what a man is, what a woman is, what a black is, what a white is. And these fragmented, truncated, divided identities are not being created by the people because you, you can't create a partial identity for yourself. From within you have a whole identity of multi-dimensionality. Outside, you get labeled with one. So I, what I see happening is negative identities are being constructed. And as Samuel Huntington said, when they invaded Iraq and he wrote the book, The Clash of Civilizations, you can only know who you are if you know who you hate. Not, you can only know who you are if you know who are your relations, yeah? your little girls the plants in your garden, your family, your networks, people <laughs> under your skin. <laughs> All of these make you who you are, but you make yourself and you make those relationships. But these external identities, just like the chemical fertilizer, Russell, it's an external input. And the minute you have an external input, you have to have a manipulation. When Mr. Borlaug wanted to sell fertilizers and push fertilizers in India, and they cooked up this thing called the Green Revolution, which was not green, not revolutionary. <laughs> he, you know, they had, because we had 12 varieties, you know, this year we've harvested our rice, so 750 varieties on our farm. And some of them, because we, we had so much rain, some of them grew seven feet tall. That's how tall native varieties are because we bred grain for humans, straw for the earthworm and for the cows, and there was food for everyone. But when you apply fertilizer to the tall varieties and a little wind comes, then it'll lodge. I call it the satyagra, the civil disobedience of the plants. So we don't want this rubbish, take it away. We don't want your chemical fertilizer. So what did Mr. Borlaug do? made it a dwarf, shrunk the plant. And this said, I'm growing more, I increased the food, I increased production. Um, so to sell fertilizer, he had to totally manipulate the plant to not be what it was. The farming system was diversity. Now he reduced it to monocultures. In the same way, Identities manufactured by those in power who want to divide us on the basis of constructed identities which they are constructing, especially since they, if, if you've noticed, you know, look at the media, the Gates Foundation is funding. All it takes is if you're addicted to your TV, all it takes is six messages of a fake identity. And, and then we're all afraid of each other. We all think the other person is the enemy. And we spend all our time contesting with each other at a time where we need to be uniting to protect our beautiful mother earth and protecting our community.
communities, our societies, our families, our future. So when you ask, what should we do? If Samuel Huntington said, you can only know who you are if you know who you hate, we need to start thinking deeply about those we love, our relatives, not just the human relatives, but as the indigenous people talk about all our relatives, all the plants, all the animals. In India, we talk of Vasudeva Kutumbam, the earth as one family. And again, just like I said, fearlessness gets cultivated, hope gets cultivated, love has to be cultivated, solidarity has to be cultivated. And we must now do it as a survival mechanism, as a survival imperative, but not out of fear. I, I, sometimes I, I do hope that the climate movement will move out a little bit out of the fear into what is it we can do today? What is it I can do at my scale? And then trust the larger self-organization of this beautiful Gaia to create the orchestra that joins our small efforts with her big efforts and the big efforts of the universe. <clears throat> the um, the um, climate movement indeed, it seems also suffers from an inability to access a certain and significant portion of the population in, you know, again, in sort of Western countries I'm referring to. I can only imagine that there are comparable concerns in India, although through your expertise in agriculture, I suppose that shows that there is a, a an agricultural class or a, I don't know how you refer to the class of people that work on the land, you know, that, that are connected to environment in a way that would be more visceral and practical. In, the, in nations that are developed in the manner that England or America is, there is this separation from nature and there is this sense that, and as well as a sort of a, a, the sense of detachment, there is also a kind of an idea that it's a, a, a privilege and in fact a reality that it's a privilege to be able to think about things that are abstract simply because the everyday life of most people, it seems like is a kind of uh, a slew of problems of bad food, bad media, bad ideas, lack of time, lack of love, lack of connection to God, lack of connection to nature. So it's very difficult to mobilize people. And suddenly these issues around climate, for example, start to seem somewhat, um, uh, what do I want to say, sort of luxurious rather than necessary. With your point about um, when I sometimes I listen to you and uh, you do give me a lot of hope and you help me to focus on the cultivation of hope and love. Uh, I feel like what is the intention of these gathering forces? What is this increase in regulation uh, around the lives of ordinary people? What do what does Bill Gates want? What do they want? Does it matter? Do you care if it's nefarious or somewhat baroque? Or do you think that this is simply economic? What what are these people pursuing? How do you know like we've talking about confronting them and it requires solidarity and a cultivation of love and hope? What are they doing? What is this project? I think the project is a project of extermination. Because when you destroy the life conditions of any organism, you know, you, you don't put a little bit of water in the plant that needs it. That plant will wither. If you don't not nurture your children, they will wither. And I, I, 
my reading of it is both on the one hand, a hubris that you can be so in control of the system that the mess you're creating, you'll always be able to fix it and in fact profit from it. So there's that arrogance, the arrogance of power, the arrogance of Baconian power, that I will subjugate nature, I'll make her a slave and I will profit from her and I will build my empire over her. So all of those writings of the 17th century, all of that is what is being exercised still. But I, I think there is also a deep, deep indifference and greed. Indifference in terms of saying, I don't care. Greed in terms of saying, I will take away their life support. I, I will take their land. It doesn't matter what happens to them. I will take their food. It doesn't matter what happens to them. And I think this indifference moving into the destruction of the life support systems of people and ecosystems and species is an ecocidal and genocidal instinct. Yeah, because those are the consequences. Now, even if they're not thinking it directly in those terms, those are the consequences. Yeah, uh, I, I remember I did a brief once for because the suicides of farmers were taking place, and uh, you know, the one is you directly kill somebody. And the other is you create intentions for that, uh, conditions for that person to die. So if a farmer is pushed into debt for GMO BT cotton seeds and then commits suicide, it is a contextual causation. You are responsible because that is the result. So if you're creating conditions for most of humanity to not meet their basic needs, not exercise their fundamental rights to clean air, food, water, freedom, education, mobility has become so truncated. All of this is basically, you know, an indirect causation. And uh, the consequences are still the same. You know, whether you went and killed that farmer or pushed him to suicide, the farmer is still dead. And that I think what's, what we are witnessing in terms of the farmer's suicides in India, we've lost 400,000 since globalization. And uh, just the other day, three farmers committed suicide in the cotton areas in Punjab. Um, at, you know, at one level, the 99% of humanity is being pushed to that level of denial of life. And, uh, and I think there is no, you know, if anyone cared, they say, I won't do it. I, I will not take the actions that create so much harm to extinguish life itself, extinguish the life of biodiversity, extinguish the planet's self-organizational capacity of managing the climate. Uh, you know, one of the simple facts we keep ignoring is the fact that this was a hot planet. And Gaia created life. She's the only living planet. She created life, she created plants that had the capacity to do photosynthesis. They could take the sunlight, they could take the carbon dioxide and give oxygen and give us food. And that then started to cool the planet down from 290 degrees to 13 degrees average, 4,000 parts per million 
of carbon dioxide down to 270 parts per million. And since then, what colonialism did is absolutely trash the biosphere. And, uh, and what the fossil fuel age has done is the arrogance that we don't even need this life. You know? We don't need the Amazon. We don't need the indigenous people. And this dispensability, the idea of dispensability is equal to the idea of extermination. That so-and-so is dispensable. And I think that's the crisis. When I say it is an extinction crisis we face, I mean it in these terms, but it is not just happening. It is being made to happen through deliberate action. And you don't mean that in a conspiratorial manner. You mean this in observable processes that we can see taking place and uh, we can see how they've sped up in the last 20 or 30 years. I sometimes wonder, Vandana, if there is a deep philosophical problem in the way that we see ourselves as um, sovereign individuals. We're not open to the evident interconnectivity that takes place between us and our environments not in a mystical way but in a pragmatic way in the fact that we are obviously and plainly dependent on our environment for our own survival whether it's breathing or eating and yet this sort of philosophy particularly in you know the countries over here that we are um, somehow yes seeking dominion uh, I, I I feel somehow that we're even though technology is advancing to the point where we might soon be entirely immersed those that can afford it in a virtual reality an augmented reality we are already in one from an ideological perspective our reality is already augmented with philosophies that are self-harming and as you say nihilistic and as you say uh, the uh, predicated on dispensability do you feel that if we were looking for guiding principles that might be politically deployed that we could look at a kind of um, uh, harmony with natural systems as a guiding principle and acknowledgement of our origins as a guiding principle i.e that we might synthesize while acknowledging the technological process that has undoubtedly occurred and cannot be unwound and perhaps isn't even a problem were it not underwritten by the kind of rapacious economic and commercial imperatives that you have explained would it be possible do you think it's sensible to create a political movement that has at its heart and perhaps necessarily passes through the um, administrative and parliamentary um, processes that each individual country requires whether it's usually democratic that is built upon decentralization of power, massive regulation of the kind of globalist um, uh, corporations that you again have described, and a kind of re-empowering of ordinary people. Do you, do you, that, that takes as its kind of source, this is what we evolved for. This is how the planet behaves. This is how we can live harmoniously with it. Wherever we are prioritizing corporate interests over the interests of, of, of the majority of people and the planet herself, we will regulate. And, and people perhaps seem to, because of a kind of fear and cynicism around socialism and you know outright communism, resent and are cynical about increasing governmental and state power which it seems at this point might be the only kind of power that can ever oppose this globe this globalist tyranny and how would you prevent the kind of, you know like you know i've said enough there i mean let me hand that over well you know the the principles that i have uh, learned i literally have learned them both through living 
through observing, through doing, through studying, is that life is self-organized. Life is free in its very existence of life. And the beauty of life is not only is it self-organized in its evolution, that a seed already has in it the structure and form of what it's going to become. Will it be an oak? Will it be a coconut? Will it be a wheat? Will it be a rice? It's in it. And to me, every time, you know, a leaf bursts forth, I find it a miracle that that pattern is right there. Every leaf of a papaya is a leaf of a papaya. You suddenly don't see a leaf of a mango, you know? And that self-organization capacity is in every living being, every living organism, and it's in us. It's in us as long as we realize we are part of the earth. We are part of a living system. We are part of a very, very vibrant, harmonious uh, symphony of life. And that from the tiniest molecule and cell to every part of our organism, to us as members of larger family, the earth family, it is all harmony at every level. And if you just watch nature, that's what it is. If you look, watch indigenous communities, that's what it is. If you watch families that are not discordant, you know, how, how do families work together? They care for each other, yeah, they give. They don't just extract them. People couldn't live in unity if all if everyone was an extractive machine, yeah, the way the corporations have become, they're only extracting. You can't live a social life with just extraction. So I think we need to take more seriously that we are living beings in a living world. And those principles from nature which were, we were divorced, we were made to feel we are separate and therefore we are technocratic beings and therefore we are machines and therefore we can be more manipulated and therefore we can be chopped up by any design of whoever wants to chop us up and fragment us and separate us. But if we take that same principle, we then realize that the world is not atomistic separation but the world is interconnected self-organization in harmony. And that self-organization is harmony is what we have been prevented from thinking about for these centuries of, you know, most people don't remember that three things happened at the same time. And if we took this common history, we would have better solidarity. The, saying my battery is running low um do you need um it doesn't seem like your battery you seem more powerful than ever but it, <laughs> no, no not mine my little I, i'm being i'm <laughs> being english and comedic um what do you um is there someone yeah, that can help but, you? let me just uh, run this through man. this you know 1492 is columbus 1493 is the papal bowl to go occupy those lands that's the indigenous issue that's what people are rising about that's where they're creating the pipelines but 10 years before that was the Pope Innocenti Papal Bull on witchcraft and inquisition, which basically said, if you think differently, you will be hung as a witch. 
Nine million people were killed, nine million within Europe, in Germany more, where the religious wars were taking place. You know, people think the Inquisition was worse in Spain. No, the worst was Germany. And the same time, you had colonialism and you had the enclosures of the commons. So colonialism, burning of witches, enclosures of the common are one phenomena when we see ourselves as an interconnected humanity. And then we start realizing that the women's movement, the indigenous movement, the movement of the farmers, the movement of people in Europe to be free, and the movement of the others who were colonized to be free is one movement. And now we have to create the self-organized harmony and not allow the colonized divisions to define who we are, what we'll do, how we will organize for the future. I just re received an award an hour ago from the cities of the world. They have a, a unity of uh, cities and local governments. And they are coordinating to take democratic actions on issues of food, on issues of climate, on issues that are related to people's lives because they're closer to people. You know, they get elected directly from pe by people. They are very often from the movements themselves. So I think if we learn from nature a little more, the principles of diversity, cooperation, self-organization, just those three principles will show us a way. Thank you. Thank you. That's very, very clear. Thank you for that. Yes. I'm still slightly worried about your power. This is probably a codependency issue for me. I'm I'm, a, I'm an addict. I'm now concerned about your power. Is it okay? Someone can someone dealing with that? Yeah, no, I I think it should last a few minutes. I mean, we've got five minutes more, so if we can start wrapping up within the five minutes, yes, certainly. I hope it's an, this gadget will last. It's autumn, awesome. right? It's a self-organizing oh, 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 idea. By the way, talking about this power, yes. Russell, I think this is the heart of it. Machines like this drain out. They have to be constantly recharged. Living systems are not machines. Human beings are not machines. We generate our own energy. And a lot of talk these days about regeneration. I say you can only regenerate that which is generative in the first place. We are generative beings. And, you know, I did quantum theory in Schrodinger didn't just do brilliant thinking in quantum theory. You remember the Schrodinger's cat? Yes. Dead or alive, it depends when you really observe it. He did a brilliant analysis of what is life. I think every child should read that book, What is Life? And he says, life is that which organizes itself and has negative entropy. Everything that is externally fed has positive entropy, that's the climate. The climate crisis is an entropy crisis. The more energy you use, no matter what the source, the more depletion of the larger available energy you will cause. So I think the self-organized capacity of living systems is what we have to realize that we are power. If only we become conscious of that power. Wow, thank you. I can see that, yeah, awakening, personal and collective awakening is a vital component of this kind of change. Vandana, thank you so much. It's so beautiful to spend time with you, to listen with you. And I, I, was, I want you to come here 
I want you to come to England. Well, can we organise for that to happen? And will you participate in if I organise an event for you to speak at and any funds that are raised by this event, we will allow you to use in whatever manner you see fit? Yeah, I mean, as long as this COVID lockdown doesn't keep coming back. It's extraordinary, it's, isn't it? It's very difficult. To, mobility has become a challenge. Look, look at Austria. You know, they're walking into supermarkets to check if you're vaccinated or not. And if you're not vaccinated, they're arresting you. What's happening? This is Austria. A free society. So, yeah, I mean, if things cool down, <laughs> I'd love to come and we'll do something together. Meantime, we will chat through these machines that need external power. <laughs> Thank you very much for filling with such hope and optimism, for synthesising and bringing together such complex ideas, philosophy, agriculture, spirituality, for showing me that there is a solution. I bow to you as a teacher. What a wonderful human being you are. Thank you so much. Thank you, Russell. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. See you soon. Bye-bye. Wow. There you go, Vandana Shiva. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin with Vandana Shiva. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockies with a hashtag under the skin. Remember, come and see me on tour. Go to russellbrand.com for details. And listen to Above the Noise every week, every Wednesday. You're already a subscriber. It's there for you. A guided meditation. Go and do one right now. It's probably more important. You'll appreciate things better. We've got some great podcasts coming up on Under the Skin. But we've also, you'll appreciate them better. If you meditate, Christmas, Jimmy Carr, Brad Evans. Who else are we going to do? Gabor Mate, JP. There's a lot coming up. There's a lot coming up. Um, and if you enjoyed this with Vandana, why not listen to Vandana's first episode, even that bit where I cried? Oh, yeah, everyone liked that bit. Yep. Oh, Satish Kumar. Yeah. What are you doing? Indian Elders Week. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and what about that uh, Indian man who's an economist? We've spoke to two oh, Indian uh, economists, I think. What was his name? Or maybe no, one of them men was Pakistani. Shaikh. Shaikh, yeah, he was good. I feel he's Pakistani. And ultimately, I feel like he was American, maybe of Pakistani origin. I think he was born there. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, we can't get too into it. Um, anyway, keep looking at the YouTube channel. And please, I mean, thank you. <laughs> the other one. I know there's two of them. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary.